I was on bond on one case out of Fort Lauderdale. And in Miami, I went into another house at nighttime. Guy comes in, confronts me. I try to talk my way out of it, right? I, I couldn't get past him on the staircase. And he's got a knife on Bottom line, he picks up his phone and he's calling 911. He's got me a knife point. And I just said, the hell with this. Kind of prayed before I let go. I said, God, anything but my spine. You know, because I knew something was going to break. I spun over that railing and I grabbed it and I stretched out and it shattered my left ankle foot, my heel was all shattered. And so I barely got out. I hopped out his back door, hopped some fences on one leg. I couldn't run on that broken one. So I knew I had a limited time to get into a vehicle and break my Centrail from the dogs. Takes me back there, he calls it in that he's got a guy with a broken foot coming in. So they meet me out there with a the gurney. They take me off the golf cart, put me in the gurney. The doors open, they're wheeling me into the emergency room. All of a sudden I look out in the parking lot, it's, Metro Dade police car were flying through the park a lot, coming to the emergency entrance. He, the guy gets out of being wheeled in. He basically yells over me, said, attention everybody, we're looking for a guy with possibly a broken leg. Next thing you know, he looked at me, it was click, he handcuffed me to the gurney. In a solitary prison cell, a man whose life has been defined by excess and fueled by crime is finally facing a long, hard stretch. It's the kind of sentence that has stolen the souls of many, driving them to the brink of despair or worse. But for this particular inmate, the sentence is merely a springboard to a new life. A life of blessings and achievements that are hard to beat, and he's just getting started. This is the extraordinary story of William Steele. Let me clarify, I didn't, I, they didn't put me with him. I knew Sharna for years. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. She didn't, she didn't exhibit any of that craziness until I moved in. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I'd like want to eat like lasagna and like bacon and lobster. None of this stuff's allowed in the house or in there, you know. And they wouldn't give me a ride to get any of it anywhere. They're like, we have food and there'll be these vegetable patties now. But I like steak, man. I like lobster. You know? And it's not a crime. It's not a violation of your parole. It's a violation of those crazy rules, though. Oh, <laughs> man, you should make it a T-shirt. That's a thought. You know, I tell you what, people have said, make smaller versions and life-size ones. <laughs> Autograph them and sell them on my I don't think there's enough uh, real estate on a t-shirt for all those rules. Yeah, that'd be an extra large for sure. How would a season two play out? You don't go back there. I can't get into it because of NDAs and my contract, but I will tell you this. I did an interview on TMZ with Harvey Levin, six minute interview. That video crossed Ordinarily, when I choose a subject for extraordination, it's because I see a person who not only overcomes incredible adversity, but also has the potential, in my estimation, to become a successful media personality. This episode strays from that format slightly, as William Steele is already something of a cultural icon. He's not only a successful author, but a reality TV celebrity featured in the A&E hit series, Inmate to Roommate. More impressively, he's a mentor and an advocate to an often overlooked demographic of incarcerated souls seeking to improve their station in life. But to truly appreciate who a man is, it's important to understand who he was, who he's known, and what he's seen. Bill Steele has seen a lot. You would never know that I'm a burglar if you saw me in your neighborhood. The Urban Dictionary has defined a term to describe the process of making a person extraordinary. I was obsessed with Mission Impossible. A traumatic trial by fire that will define not only their future, but the essence of who and what they are to become. I wanted to be the guy that can get in and out of everything, you know, open locks, do anything. I'm William Crooks, and this is Extraordination. My name is William Steele. I go by Bill on the a Network reality show, Inmates Roommate. I was born and raised in New York City actually from Brooklyn. And I was from a middle-class area called Bensonhurst, Gravesend area of Brooklyn. We were in an upper middle-class neighborhood. It was a very peaceful, safe neighborhood. A lot of Italians, a lot of organized crime. <laughs> there was a lot of Jewish people in my neighborhood as well. Very, very good community. And so when I grew up, my mother was mentally ill, but there was a lot of drama in my house because of my mother's mental illness. You know, she was committed to psychiatric hospitals numerous times. My earliest memory is visiting her in a psychiatric hospital. And it was very depressing, a place called Pilgrim State out on Long Island. And through her mental illness, I found myself defending her in the neighborhood. If, you know, the other kids picked at her, 
me, threw snowballs at her. I was always defending my mother. So that stuck with me all my life, defending women, the mentally ill, you know, children. So that's always been with me. And what happened was I, I went normally through high school and uh, because of problems with, you know, my mother, I lived with relatives for a while on and off, but came back to New York, attended college for a time. I don't know, sometime in the 80s, I always had this thing where I wanted to be the guy, be like a James Bond, a guy that can get in and out of everything, you know, open locks, do anything. You know, I was obsessed with Mission Impossible, the, the old one, Peter Graves. And I was obsessed with uh, James Bond. So I wanted to be that guy, you know, doing good things for people, you know, for the better society. Well, a few years after I got into that, I worked, I had a security company. I worked for a locksmith place in, in Manhattan. I worked it all around the World Trade Center doing Master King, installing alarms, locks uh, with safes. And uh, shortly around that time, a close friend of mine, Sammy, he invited me to go to a nightclub. And I wasn't really into nightclubs. And I was going to go with him because he just wanted somebody to go to the club with. And he was a notoriously poor driver. So I decided that if we go, I'm driving because he's had so many accidents. I'm a very good driver. So I put him off. I, I canceled the trip. Bottom line, he went by himself after I, I canceled on him at the last minute. Well, I was working for Century 21 Real Estate at the time, and his grandfather called the office and I had got him a job there. And he says, Billy, do you know where uh, Sammy's new apartment is? I said, yeah, I know exactly where it is. What's going on, Eli? He says, oh, I got to send the maid over there to clean some things out. I said, I was there yesterday. It's clean. He doesn't need any help right now. And then he started crying, and then he says, you know what that, that F went out and did last night? I said, what'd he do? He said he had a car accident, he passed away, and I nearly fell out of my chair. I couldn't believe it, he was my best friend, and I, I was supposed to be driving that night. So I was really extremely grief-stricken over this, and that I kind of felt responsible that he's you know no longer with us. But I asked his grandfather, I said, you know, when's the funeral? When's the... So we're Jewish and he's been, he's buried already. We have to bury our loved ones within 24 hours. And so now I had no chance to pay respects to the funeral or the cemetery, nothing. So I lived with that pain for a long time. I was 22 years old when that happened. And uh, I was just devastated. And I guess the people around me, but I had my father working with me at the office as well. And they all noticed I was like, I guess, stricken and uh, came over to comfort me. And I said, Sam, he was killed last night and I need to take the day off. So I went to look up some old friends of ours from school, from high school years, to let them know what happened and just to clear my head. So I went to the house, the sitting shiva, which is a Jewish custom when somebody dies, and I paid my respects to his family. Then I went to look up some friends and, you know, they didn't seem too concerned that Sammy died. And little did I know, they were already heavy into the cocaine use. So they offered me some coke, you know, hey, you're depressed over Sammy, because I don't drink. I don't smoke weed. I never really messed around with anything like that. And, you know, I just, I just wanted, I was all about making money and, you know, doing well and being happy and that's it. So fast forward, I, I try the Coke. These guys, you know, tell me it's going to help my depression, my, you know, help me grieve, whatever. So they were smoking. So I took a hit. For me, it was off to the races. I was one of those people that got pretty, pretty bad, pretty deep, pretty quick. And so I quickly started perverting my skills in locksmithing and alarms to start doing scores. And those scores escalated to me being responsible for multi-million dollars in burglaries all across the country, known as a prolific jewel thief, art thief. I used to steal artwork, paintings, antiques, collectibles, coin collections, whatever it was. And I made a lot of money doing it, but I was on and off coke. And then I had connections in South Florida just uh, through friends of friends, acquaintances, some are still alive, I'd rather not name them. Uh, I made these connections in Miami and, and with some Cubans in Hialeah. I was doing it in Florida, I was doing it in California, Las Vegas, New York City. And when I started having all these connections and some family in Florida, I got involved with cocaine trafficking. So people I knew were moving kilos and at that time, you know, you could make several thousand on each one you moved. So I'd have a trunk full of cocaine you know, I'm always clean cut and get on I-95 and drive a little trunk full of cocaine to New York City. I was getting 99% of it from Colombians from the Mendejin cartel. And there was one of the main guys who's notorious now because they made the cocaine cowboys about him, Jorge Ayala, they call him Rivi, a loco. So I got it from him and some other people. And I didn't realize then how dangerous he truly was. 
because he's killed a ton of people for Escobar and for Griselda Blanco, the Black Widow. And I think he's serving life somewhere now, and then they made the Cocaine Cowboys about him. And so these are some of my connections back in the day. During this period, on and off, I was getting in trouble here and there. We were running guns, we were running coke. We were getting semi-automatic Mac-10s or something like that, and then you convert them, you cut the pin off, convert it to full auto, so I can get it for a gram of coke or a couple hundred bucks at a gun show, make it fully auto, build a silencer in a relative shop, and we were selling those for two, three grand in New York City. So I was bringing up silenced weapons, I was bringing up coke, and uh, I was doing scores. I was doing scores everywhere, and I do it mostly alone. I don't like partners. I don't take partners in anything. You know, I don't have partners in crime. <laughs> the one time I did, he put me in prison in New York, so I don't do that anymore. But you know, there's no one to tell on you. You don't have to worry about it. if you told his girlfriend, his girlfriend tells on everybody. So I worked alone. Well, there was an instance, uh, 19, I want to say 86 in Fort Lauderdale. I was spending a lot of time there. I was on a run. I was living with five girls from Ireland. They were on holiday. And they were smoking hash and drinking beer all day long and laughing at me because I'm smoking coke and freebasing, snorting coke like all day long and I'm paranoid as hell. The police are after me. It was uh, fun times, but it was, you know, looking back, I love trying to glorify my past because it's, it really made a mess out of my, my future. But uh, so like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, would come around and knock. I'd be the guy out the back door running, hitting fences and then calling back and they're like, what you run for? And I'm like, what do those cops want? They weren't cops, they were Jehovah's Witnesses. Get, come back home, you know? So I went through a lot of that, but there was one time when I hit a house, beautiful house on the intercoastal point lot. I don't know, probably a million dollar house back in those days. And in the wallet that was there was an ID card said Sheriff Nick Navarro. So Nick Navarro was the guy who really basically founded like on the cops program. It started like in Fort Lauderdale, Broward County Sheriff. He was the sheriff at that time of Broward County, Florida. I just hit the man's house. Out of that house in the jewelry box is a card from President Reagan, a little card with the presidential seal. It said, thank you for your assistance on the South Florida Drug Task Force. Sincerely, President Ronald Reagan, <laughs> thanking the sheriff for his help interdicting cocaine. I think it was 86 I hit his house. A bag that I got out of the house, I don't know what's in it, I thought it was a camera bag. I just threw it over my shoulder, threw some jewelry and another bag over my shoulder and I left. So as I'm going through everything, the last thing I open, it's got half a kilo of cocaine in it. Now this is in the man's house. There was always allegations of corruption on his part. <laughs> I know what I got out of his house. And I know that when he left office, the sheriff's office years later, because I think it was six or eight kilos of unaccounted for cocaine were found in, in the safe in his office, not connected to any case, like just sitting there. So anyway, he was supposedly corrupt. I don't know, I think in office several times. And he was very famous. He had a white, white hair. He's very famous. So in those days, you know, it was all about the Cubans and the Colombians going after each other and everybody else. But I panicked and got rid of everything. There was a five-shot detective special that I got off of an extra bedroom on, on a dresser. And I told the girls, I really wanted to go to uh, California. And I says, I tell you what, who wants to go to California in the morning? <laughs> you, know, you guys want to go, let's go. As I'm paying for everything, I'll go buy tickets right now. I got everybody tickets. We left the next day. I took a lot of the jewelry. I threw it in the intercoastal. I saved the gun and the cocaine. The gun, I sold it years later to somebody, uh, traded it for a bulletproof vest. He dropped it and the hammer came off and it spun around and he almost shot somebody in the room he was in. So that was me and my life and being on the run. And I have a thing on my true crime channel, William Steele True Crime on YouTube. It's called The Misadventures of a Super Thief. And I have little clips of all the things that can go wrong when you're breaking the law. And I'm not proud of it. I try to use these stories to, to help people and show them that the path I was on is nothing but misery. So I lived on the run. I'm in Vegas, I'm in California. Just one crazy story after the other. And I didn't really care at, at those years. You know, that I'm pretty arrogant about maybe I'll never get caught or I could be on a run forever, I'm having a blast. But who's having a blast? You're in hotel rooms constantly. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. And my family's constantly scared. Your next call they're gonna get is gonna be the cops or the you know, hospital that I'm dead or caught, you know, somewhere. I had a sister who would say many times, the only time I feel at ease is when you're in jail because I know that I'm not going to get a call that you're dead, you know, that you're going to kill doing something illegal. I even had family members say, you know, why don't you just smoke weed, you know, just calm down. You're always hopped up on coke and paranoid and on the run and all this stuff. And 
And I would never do anything illegal while I was high, except for get high. I'd make sure my binge was over. I slept for a few days and I would go very clear headed to what I was doing. Because the people that go out in desperation usually end up caught or killed. Plenty of close calls. I mean, there's so many instances of minor things. And so let me just tell you how it kind of culminated because there's so much to this. It would literally take numerous of these interviews to get to them. But bottom line, I got caught, went to jail, went to prison, you know, a few times. Basically, the last big one was I'm in Florida, I'm doing burglaries, I'm, you know, ripping and running, I'm doing all kinds of bullshit. And I end up getting arrested. I was on bond on one case out of Fort Lauderdale. And in Miami, I went into another house at nighttime. Guy comes in, confronts me. I try to talk my way out of it, right? I, I couldn't get past him in the staircase. And he's got a knife on me. So I usually have lock picks on me, police scanner. I don't wear gloves, but I dress really sharp when I'm doing my burglaries. You would never know that I'm a burglar if you saw me in your neighborhood at all. You'd think I lived there or was buying a house. So I was dressed really well, but I was, you know, of course I'm in his house and I'm in this top bedroom with a railing. I pretended I was drunk, even though I didn't drink. Bottom line, he picks up his phone and he's calling 911. He's got me at knife point. And I just said, the hell with this. And I was on bond on another case in Fort Lauderdale, one county north. Kind of prayed before I let go. I said, God, anything but my spine. Because I knew something was going to break. I spun over that railing and I grabbed it and I stretched out to drop myself down. And he grabbed my arm and I fell crooked. And it shattered my left ankle, foot, my heel was all shattered. And so I barely got out. I hopped out of the back door, hopped some fences on one leg. I couldn't run on that broken one. And then there was a pool, and I knew in Florida they used the dogs and the helicopters, and they secure the area, they do a perimeter. They make a real big deal out of a burglary down there. So they, this is what they do, and I kind of know how they work. So I knew I had a limited time to get into a vehicle and break my scent trail from the dogs. So I saw a pool, and I actually jumped in the, in the deep end with my broken foot, fully clothed, swam through it to get the bleach and the water all over me, you know, the chlorine, came out, and then I kept hopping away to try to break the scent trail because I had all these chemicals on me. And I went like another street away. There was a guy going to work or something. By now it's probably three, four in the morning. And he's got his car idling and I rang his bell. And I said, hey, I was out jogging. You know, can you uh, get me to a hospital? I think uh, the, a guy was a drunk driver, hit my foot, ran me over. I, I got to get to the hospital. And he says, oh, okay, let me lock my house. And he leaves me, you know, waiting. And I know they're about to seal the neighborhood off. I didn't get out, out of the area, really. I only went like and a half. So he finally comes out and he wants to put me in the front seat. I say, hey, I think I'm going to the shock and I go in the back seat. So now I want to lay down so I, nobody sees me coming out of this was, a, I want to say it was Coconut Grove. But anyway, so we're driving out of there and I'm laying down in the back and the area is sealed off. He goes, man, there's cops everywhere. I said, yeah, I think the guy wrecked me after he hit me, you know, so I'll explain it to him at the hospital. <laughs> you know, this bullshit, I get out of this place. He said, I got to stop up here. I said, do what you have to do. You know, I, I pretend nothing was wrong. And the cop that had the block sealed where we were trying to get out of, literally made him stop and shine that light over my body and feet. And I'm like, uh, please don't let him see me. I, I'm looking at the light on my body. He saw my body and waved the guy through. I couldn't even believe it. And by some fluke of what, I don't know, that guy didn't even either notice me or think I was the same person, let us through. And here I am wet in pain, laying down in the middle of a roadblock. <laughs> so I don't know if maybe God had his hand on me in my life then and I didn't want me to. Bottom line, I tried to get in the hospital. Um, I knew not to go to an emergency room because there's cops in emergency rooms and all that, especially in Miami. Went to, uh, I think it was Mercy Hospital. I just was waiting. I was going to steal an ambulance. <laughs> there was an ambulance parked there, like a private ambulance, some wheelchairs, and a Cuban guy with a big cigar in his mouth not far away. And I grabbed the wheelchair, I started wheeling over to his ambulance. <laughs> and he said, hey, my man, hey, my man, what do you do? You can't sit in a wheelchair. It belongs to my company. You know, I work for that company. And I said, oh, no, no, I think I broke my foot. I'm waiting for my girl to come take me, drive me around back to the emergency room. I'm just taking some weight off my foot. He goes, oh, okay. And then I think he realized I was going to grab the van because he had his, the power on, the music playing. And he went and reached in and he took his keys out. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now security starts coming over. He knows Haitian dude with a, a golf cart, you know, the security. So he comes up. He says, hey, a lot of people saying you're in pain. You need help getting to the emergency room. No, no, no. I'm waiting for my, my girl. You know, don't worry about it. 
and I blew him off like twice. And finally, he came a third time because I was looking for something to steal uh, or a taxi or a car that was left unattended. I was taking it, but nothing came. I did not want to set foot in that emergency room. He came by like a second or third time. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm thinking now, okay, he'll get me in the emergency room. I'll steal some crutches or wheelchair and get the hell out of the emergency room before they realize who I am. Takes me back there. He calls it in that he's got a guy with a broken foot coming in. So they meet me out there with a the gurney. They take me off the golf cart, put me in the gurney. The doors open. They're wheeling me into the emergency room. All of a sudden, I look out in the parking lot. It's Metro Dade police car. We're flying through the parking lot, coming to the emergency entrance. I'm like, crap, I can't believe this. The guy gets out. I'm being wheeled in. He basically yells over me. Said, attention, everybody. We're looking for a guy with possibly a broken leg dressed such and such way in the last 20 minutes, blah, blah, blah. And they all looked down at me in the gurney and they said, he just came in and his leg screwed up. <laughs> Next thing you know, he looked at me, it was click, he handcuffed me to the gurney. So there was a lot of things, crazy things like this that happened. Could have been killed, you know, whatever. Bottom line, during all this time as a fugitive and dealing with high-end jewelry, dealing with fences in Manhattan, 47th Street, fences in Las Vegas, fences in, in California, let me back up. I'll tell you about Robert Durst because I wrote a book about Robert Durst. Robert Durst is the wealthiest serial killer in American history. That book is called Sex and a Serial Killer, and it's My Bizarre Times with Robert Durst. My co-author, Gary Greenberg, was the editor-in-chief of the National Enquirer. He still works with them today. Uh, so Gary became a friend of mine while I was incarcerated because there was a guy that was in the same jail. That was, he was a young kid. He was like 18, and he was being framed for a murder to let some other guy off the hook. So I stepped up and became a defense witness, and Gary happened to be the jury foreman, the editor and the crime writer for the National Enquirer. So after the trial, the kid was acquitted. I testified to help him get out, and you know we, we got in touch. I think I reached out to him through my attorney or something. But anyway, we got in touch, and he, he said, look, you got a hell of a story. And he kept encouraging me to write, right, you know, all these years. And I said, well, I want to write my life story, and I really want to take it a different direction. I want to help people. I want to. I don't want to tell it just salacious true crime. I want to couch my stories in a way that help people because the stories can go on for days. The war stories, the things, the horrible things I've been involved with or witnessed. But I want to try to touch on it to get people's attention. But I want to tell my story. You know how I came to this point in life. You know that I'm not proud of. And I started writing that, and all of a sudden I said, "Look, I knew Robert Durst, Elaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, all these people that years later became super infamous. But I knew them years before." And he said, well, you know, just put them in your book, whatever. It's no big deal. But then all of a sudden, there was the jinx came out on HBO about Robert Durst. Robert Durst is getting arrested here. He's getting suspected of this there. And I'm like, I already knew this since the 80s, you know, the 80s, 90s. I was at the locksmithing school coming and going with my friend Sammy, the one who died. And uh, how I met Robert Durst was I was literally coming out of a, a fast food place, a chicken place on, on 42nd Street by the school. And literally, we ran into each other. My drink went all over him. He curses me out. I had a little bit of Coke on me. I was dealing Coke. I wasn't using it then, but I was selling. And I had a piece on me. He had a gun on him. And in the middle of Midtown Manhattan, we both went for our guns. Well, Susan Berman, the lady he came to me to kill years later, she pulled him away. And my friend Sammy pulled me away. But it was packed midday, Midtown Manhattan, people everywhere. And there was almost a shootout between me and him in the street. He had a really bad temper, and I was Napoleon complex. You know, I thought the world was out to get me, so I always carried a piece. I'd rather shoot you than, than fight with you, whatever that's worth. But he escaped with his life, and maybe I did too that day, and maybe a life sentence or whatever they would give you in New York for shooting somebody in midtown Manhattan for something so stupid. But he just was like lighting into me. He said, you stupid mother effer. He had a really foul mouth, and, you know, I was a cocky guy from Brooklyn, and I just wanted to take care of him right there. Bottom line, that's how I met him. That's how I met Susan. She let slip that very day because he had already killed his first wife, Kathy Durst. And don't forget, the Durst organization, they control most of New York City real estate. They're worth billions of dollars. He just recently died worth $100 million while he was in jail. So they're very powerful people. And Susan got me to the side and said, and he, he overheard it because she, she told him, look, just get him another soda and let this calm down, you know, don't get yourself in trouble. And my friend was telling me the same thing. And I'm like, I'm good. You know, it's the dudes and I, you know, you know what, you know, it is what it is. So as we're in back in the fast food place, all of us, she said, he's under a lot of stress. 
his wife was just murdered and he's under a lot of stress. And he glared at her because the story was not that he killed her. The story was that she was missing. Like it was a Freudian slip on her part. And she said, no, no, I mean, I mean, his wife's been missing. So she knew she was part of his alibi, but she let slip in a, a few months after this murder, what was really happening in a Freudian slip to me. And that's how I realized this lady's in danger. This dude's an asshole and he's dangerous. And he's super wealthy because she kind of let on that he's, you know, very, very affluent. And after that, you know, I was just so aggravated with it. Yes, he was paranoid of me at this stage. He was asking what I was doing in the area, you know, how am I? I'm sorry about what happened. And I said, well, I'm, you know, going to locksmith school, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, I can always use a good locksmith. He says, I need the kind that's willing to cross the line if you're willing to cross the line. I said, for the price is right, anything's possible, you know. What I found out later, he wanted me to break into people in the attorney's offices and get paperwork and documents and stuff that he wanted back or whatever. He wanted to use my skills for that. So that's how I got to know him. And my book details things that we did together, things that he asked me to do, put me up to do, how I knew him, photographs that I came across that I took from him, highly incriminating photographs. And frankly, in those days, there was no intention to go to law enforcement, but there was an intention to blackmail him with these photographs, you know. But I did want to know where the remains of his first wife was, because to this day, they've never been found. Now, he was a weirdo, man. There was one day when he's at my house, he's... Wealthy, he can get any hotel room he wants, but he wants to bring call girls and one case, a transsexual to my house. And he's paying me for use of the upstairs bedroom and sometimes for the basement. And during all this period, he's bringing over weird shit. Like he's always armed. And I say, Bobby, you're not coming in here with a gun, man. You're you're freaking half crazy. And I'm just stupid enough to kill you if you, if you do the wrong thing when you're paranoid. Give me your gun. And I would hide the gun from him or lock it in a briefcase or something. And so one time he brought over a luggage and I said, now what the hell is that? Well, he mentioned to me that he had killed Kathy. Yes, she had a comment over turning the family into like Patrick Monaghan. He was like Senator or something from New York, Congressman, some financial stuff that would have got Durst family members in trouble. But because uh, she wanted out of the divorce and he wasn't willing to pay enough and she was getting vindictive. So he, he says it's Kathy's remains in the suitcase and that he likes to take her out sometimes. And I explained that encounter in my house. Now I would search him and take all his stuff from him to go through it, to make sure there was nothing crazily incriminating that I'm gonna get jammed up with and that he wasn't armed while he was getting high and paranoid. And uh, this was too much. It was enough for me where I just kicked him out of the house. You know, I just like, you gotta go. And I started really not wanting to let him in there anymore. You know, <laughs> at any price. What so I think she was in the case? I, he never opened it. I said, I don't even want to see it. He's so crazy, he probably brought over a medical specimen uh, skeleton and would have said it was Kathy. But uh, I never laid eyes on it, you know? And I just got him out. I said, man, you got to get out. I don't, I don't want to see you not opening that here. You know, that's it. I even have him recorded because I got so afraid of what he was trying to involve me in that to protect myself, I just started having a recording device in my pocket when he came around because really just in case he tried to kill me that somebody would know what happened to me. So I, I got to know him over years and up until the time he was plotting to kill Susan out in California in 2000, uh, he came to me and probably some other people with a, a great idea. We need to kill Susan. I said, we don't need to kill Susan. I said, I like Susan. What, what, what's your problem with Susan? You know, and I detail in the book the things he said about that. And then I ended up getting locked up. He, he gave me some money, he gave me some phones, to stay in touch with him. I can't say her name officially because she's never been charged, but somebody very close to him was involved and encouraging this and said, Bobby's got to be alibied. You know, you give you anything you want because she can bring him down for the murder of Kathy Durst. And uh, I knew what it was all about. I, I just, uh, I was looking for a way to stop him, rip him off and then just stop him, you know, make him think I was going to go to authorities, whatever. And, but take as much money as I could, you know? And it didn't work out like that. I ended up getting arrested and I got him on a three-way from the jail, but it was outside of the ways that we agreed to communicate. And so he was super paranoid. So was the lady he was with, and he didn't really want to talk. And, you know, there was a stage when I spoke to him within weeks of my arrest, like probably three, four weeks. And I says, hey, do me a favor, you know, when you go see Susan the next time, 
to wish her, you know, happy, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah and all that. And he goes, oh, no, I, you know, I sent her to be with her father. Her father was David the Jew Berman, who ran Las Vegas for like Mario Lansky and some big actors back in the day. Dave the Jew was, was her father. Her father predeceased her. He had been dead. And I, my heart sunk, man. I'm like, holy crap, man, this dude really killed her. And he said something along the lines of like, you want something done, you do it yourself. You know, I don't like to play games. And she took the phone from him and started screaming at him for saying that and hung the phone up. You know, like, you know, why is he saying anything to me about it? God knows where I'm calling from. Because I didn't tell him I was in jail. I had him on a, on a three-way where he wouldn't hear the recording that you're from jail. I had a lot of guilt over that, you know, so that was another reason I got out and I relapsed more and I had a lot of guilt over Susan's death and everything. So I wrote the book, I tell the story. And anyway, all through these other encounters, like a meeting celebrities in California, I did a TV show with uh, Dennis Farina called Crime Story back in the 80s. Now I did Crime Story just playing little extra roles, you know, background stuff. I was the cocaine dealer on set at that time. And so I was hanging out with Andrew Dice Clay. I was hanging out with Dennis Farina. I was hanging out with Paul Santucci. He had been to prison and became an actor. And so all these guys knew me and they liked having me around. And every time I turned around, I'm getting offered another part. And then Christy O'Rourke from Production Services says to me, hey, do you want to go to Miami and film in a couple of episodes of Miami Vice? You know, because we also do that. And I'm like, I just fled South Florida because I had hit Navarro's house, you know, not long before that. So I didn't tell her that, but I'm like, uh, no, 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 I got some family problems in South Florida. I don't want to go back there right now. But I was actually offered, you know, a role on Miami Vice. Michael Mann Productions made both the shows basically the same time. Miami Vice there and in Chicago and Vegas was a crime story. And so I got most of the Vegas episodes. So they said, look, you know, we'll give you a speaking role if you want to go audition for one or be background out in Miami Vice. I turned it down. But I did some other stuff. I was in a small part in a, a movie with uh, Robert De Niro. Um, it was Midnight Run. I get this. I'm a driver for a minute. My scene is either never in or so obscure I can't even see myself. You know, one of those things. I wanted the whole time. Then I did Elvis and Me. Uh, Priscilla Presley wrote a book about Elvis. I actually met her daughter for a time in Las Vegas. And, I'm not going to explain what all that situation, but I did a little a little small background piece in that too, as one of Elvis's entourage, one of his friends or whatever. So these are all things I did on the run. So now the cops come to get me from New York when I'm wanted. They have the foot chase with me, the detectives, and I, I beat them. I beat them in high speed pursuit. And so I was on a run for years. I get busted in Vegas. They come out to pick me up. They said, look, your flight's in two days. We're here. You're being extradited. Your local charges are being dropped. And we're taking you to New York. And I said, all right, do me a favor. I know you're pissed off because he said he was pissed off. He chased me through a puddle in his brand new shoes three years before. I said, I know you're pissed off at me. I said, but don't make it worse and gamble while you're here because I don't. I live here. Don't even gamble. They built these buildings on losers like you guys with families and houses. And, you know, 99% of people lose there. One guy didn't gamble. The other one did. Lost like eight grand coming to pick me up, extradite me. And man, they were pissed on the flight back. You mother effort <laughs> if we didn't have to come out here to get you. <laughs> so, you know, there's a whole big story to that. So this is the crazy things you go through. And then I, I met uh, Robert Wagner, California, some other celebrities, which is going to be incorporated into my book. I'm going to be doing another book. Well, all throughout these years, I end up running into who I now know to be Jeffrey Epstein. I'm at a fence in Palm Beach County. Worth Avenue, there's a diamond salon. I'm not going to say the name of it. The guy that owned is deceased now, so respect to him. But this is one of the top diamond salons in the country at the time. I think it's still there. I don't even know. Maybe his family still owns it. Second floor walk up, very exclusive place. But it was one of my fences. I could bring in two, three hundred thousand dollars of jewelry, walk out with, you know, cash. No questions asked, no paperwork, no IDs, nothing. So I would go there. And many times I was wanted and I was. Jump Bond, or I was a fugitive. I was wanted so many times. And this one particular time, I used to run with a lot of guns with silencers. I didn't shoot anybody, but I would have them for effect because I was doing things mostly alone. You got traffickers I'm dealing with, a lot of cash, you know, 80 grand, 100 grand, buying kilos or whatever it was to New York, or, or just moving it for them for commissions or whatever. Because clean cut, Caucasian, and a rented Lincoln and cruise control up to New York, or sometimes even on Amtrak back in those days. So I was always in a mess for something <laughs> or on somebody's radar. So I had the gun, I'm wanted by the cops. 
wave to my friend. He's waiting on a guy with a young girl who I now know to be Jeffrey Epstein. <clears throat> From the back, he could look like you, you know, the gray hair that he's got, you know, but it's a little darker back in those years. And I see the guy, and there's a lot of affluent people there. And I'm good at sizing people up. He said, just take your time, you know, I'll wait for you. So I'm just pretending to be another customer. Either he didn't notice me come in or he forgot I was standing there. I look over and he's got his hand down the back of this young girl's shorts. This is Jeffrey Epstein. She looked like she was about 14. And the only thing I wanted to do was take out that piece and, and, and take care of that right then and there. Cameras everywhere, I'm wanted. My blood's boiling, you know, I just, it's what the, you know. And I just, <clears throat> I cleared my throat real loud so that he would, you know, realize I was there and he stopped. When they left, my friend was ready to wait on me, look over the jewelry, buy the jewelry. I said, hey, I'm gonna go grab some lunch. I'll be right back. And I followed that dude. I followed him to a restaurant called Taboo. And I, it's in the book, the second book I wrote when I got out of prison. It's called Galen, her name, subtitle, Sensational and Impure, because that's what a judge said, the material in her cases. I like that. I put it for my subtitle, Sensational and Impure by William Steele on Amazon or my website williamsteelauthor.com. So I wrote about my experiences with them over time after I confronted him, how I confronted him, I let him see the piece and everything. And he uh, would have got a lot worse treatment if it wasn't Worth Avenue, you know, with Rolls Royces and Lamborghinis and all these beautiful cars and people and cameras everywhere. And I would come out at the short end of the stick. I was a guy who had been in trouble with the law, trafficking drugs, a notorious burglar, I'm a fugitive. I'm not going to win at any time these police show up. He's a, clearly a resident of Palm Beach. That's how I met him. He eventually induces me to her. Her and I had a fling on and off for a few years, and she began to confide some things to me, which I talk about in the book. And in my book, I name names that people are afraid to name, but I've named them before they were even released. You know, people that I've seen personally, either there or on video, or whatever. So that's how I came to know them. I eventually get caught for everything. I go to prison. When I'm in prison, I become a law clerk and I start going back to like having a clear head and just wanting to help people. I'm a tutor, I'm tutoring guys to get their GED. I'm in the law library. I'm helping guys that get screwed over by their lawyers or by the system. Now I work with people that are wrongfully convicted. So if anybody's wrongfully convicted in your family, reach out, we'll see what we can help with. I'm not an attorney, but I exactly know what you need to do and what you need to say to try to get things done and moving along because everybody has deadlines. So me being in a law library, seeing a lot of heartache, a lot of people that were preyed upon by their attorneys or by the system, but the justice system is like a freaking meat grinder. It just runs you right through unless you're top of the echelon wealthy you can buy your own form of justice, which is another thing I cover on my channel, the, the unfairness of the justice system in this country. So I started having a real heart for people, man, again, you know, like I used to have, and I was like, well, I want to just help people. I want to get out of prison, not to break any more laws, not steal anything else, not hurt people, not disappoint my family and all this other stuff that comes with it. So I started taking college courses and I had met Gary and Gary was always encouraging me to continue writing. Once the Durst information came out, there's an A-list screenwriter, Patina Gillawa in California. She got nominated for an Emmy for Bessie. Bessie was a Queen Latifah star that was on HBO. So she got nominated for a screenplay and she won a bunch of Image and NAACP award. But she does a lot of stuff for Warner Brothers and BET television. And, and so she's this top-notch Hollywood screenwriter. She said, I just did the Lifetime story on Robert Durst. I know we could turn your story with him into a screenplay and I could probably sell it to Lifetime or Warner Brothers. So she started working with me. She started working on a screenplay. In the middle of it all, she passed away from cancer. God bless her, you know, her family and all that. And so I lost, you know, a big advocate that I had. But in the process, Gary was very busy, but eventually he wrote the book with me. She was going to finish the book and do the screenplay. But she passed away in the middle of it. He finished the book and it was doing pretty good while I was in prison. Nancy Grace, the queen of true crime, covers my book on her podcast. Well, we put that book out while I was still incarcerated. I'm taking college courses. I'm meeting professors. I'm they're bringing these, these college students into the prison. Like I spent four years in lockdown for escape. That was nothing more than really a walk-off. I was on America's Most Wanted profiled on their website for a walk-off because of my skills of who I am. And well, I was treated like crap when I got back in. I was in Supermaxes in Florida, Supermaxes in Virginia, four years of Supermax. 
being treated like I was a serial killer. And when I got out of all that status, I just, I signed up for everything. I was, I was volunteering. I was helping mental health department because I had experience. I was helping talk that guys down from suicide and getting involved with guys that were, you know, questioning, you know, they're doing a lot of time, a lot of depression. And I had experience with counseling with guys, tutoring, trying to get people signed up for chaplain programs, trying to get people signed up for college programs, you know, just, just being available to guys to try to help. Plus, it doesn't hurt. Like, I'm not affiliated with any gang or organized crime. I know you cover a lot of that stuff. But I made it a point to stay, even in my criminal career, try to stay clear of that, other than dealing here and there. But I was never in a crew. I'm not one of these guys who, like, like you know, some of these guys. But I did my own thing. Some people knew who I was. I was better off when people didn't know who I was because they wanted to use me for my skills. And then I know I catch a bullet in the head. They take everything. So. I'm better off working alone. And I, you know, can have plenty of cash and jewelry laying around the house in secret spots and in those days. And I don't have to worry about anybody knowing that I'm there with it, you know? So and I was doing the right thing in prison. My book was doing good. Um, I made a friend, Tom Madden. Tom Madden owns Transmedia a Public Relations Firm in Boca Raton. Tom became like my best friend and, and my cheerleader because he wanted to see me turn my life around. I was doing good. And Tom, used to be the vice president of NBC. So Tom became a good friend. A lady in California called Tom three months before my release. After 18 years, people are dying everywhere from COVID. This is last year already, you know, maybe just over a year ago. I haven't been out that long. So I'm a nonviolent offender. I don't have any disciplinary charges to speak of. I have like one for having too much legal work or some bullshit. It's fire hazard, whatever. But I wasn't getting in any kind of crap. I wasn't joining any clubs or cliques or gangs. But I was useful to everybody because they called me New York and New York knows the law. So they might be calling me racist names one minute, but the next minute sneaking over to myself. Hey, New York, can you help me get back to court? Can you help me sue the medical department? You know, and I'm like, wait a minute. Aren't you the guy that's racist against white, white people or whatever it was? You know, I don't want to hear that crap no more around me. Absolutely. I'll help you. I'll help you, but knock off the bullshit around me. I don't want to hear it. You know, so I would help everybody. I came out with that attitude of, towards my release, but people were dying everywhere from COVID. We had an outbreak in the prison. We were doing fine until we got a new assistant warden who says, wait a minute, because of COVID, you haven't been shut down in a year? And everyone was like, yes, because they bring people from outside prisons to shake you down, lock you down for a week. And the outside officers are the one bringing it in. He said, I don't care. He locked the prison down. He, a massive outbreak ensued because they brought outside officers in. A massive outbreak. People were dying all around me. Friends of mine died. I'm freaking out. I just did 18 years. I'm like weeks from going home and people are dropping like flies. I'm writing grievances for masks and they wouldn't supply masks. They, they said, you're trying to cite a riot. You're trying to get these guys afraid because you think you have common sense. You think you know the law. This is not serious. I said, watch what it's doing in prisons and other countries and all over places where they're not careful. They, they can't get away from it. And so I almost got locked up for fighting for our rights to be safe and try to at least try to protect yourself. No matter what your position is on masks, I think they're helpful. Why? Because why are surgeons using them when they're doing surgery? You want a surgeon coughing over your open stomach? You know, so they do prevent to some degree spread of whatever contagions. <laughs> I was willing to wear three of them if that's what it took. I, I don't want to breathe in that crap. So I took that heat. It went away. And eventually, everybody got masks. Finally, they started distributing masks. And I had a cellmate, young black dude. He was just, oh my God. It was always this negative, horrible music about hating the police and white people all the time. And he was always smoking weed and drinking wine with his buddies. And I said, dude, man, I've tried to do nothing but help you. I said, don't kill me before I leave here. You're gonna bring that COVID into this cell. I don't wanna die. You have diabetes. I'm overweight, man, and I'm older. I'm not trying to catch this COVID before I go home. And he, I couldn't convince this guy to stop. So I was just like wearing gloves and two masks and spraying yeah. stuff and bleach all the time or whatever, disinfected. He's like, man, you need to stop spraying that shit around here. And I'm disinfecting the cell all the time. But uh, I didn't think I'd make it. Man. So Tom introduced me to a lady. She was looking for representation for Dave Reinhardt, California prison. FreeDaveReinhardt.com. Please look it up. Look him up. He's innocent, his family stole millions of dollars from him, sent him to prison to try to keep his money. So she's been working to try to exonerate him and expose uh, securities fraud, corruption, and, and these crooked lawyers and, and cops and stuff out in California. She's a fraud examiner. 
and she's a civilian fraud examiner. She's a forensic account. So she's always about helping people and crime victims, all this. And so she was looking for a PR firm to represent her to help with David Reinhardt. And Tom said, hey, my friend and slash client just wrote a book about Robert Durst. He's incarcerated. I'll put you in touch with him while we're trying to help you because he's also a law clerk. You know, he knows the law. Told Mary about me. Mary got my book, Sex and the Serial Killer, My Bizarre Times with Robert Durst. It's a very visceral account of how I really want to tell the story for the victims. And she says she was so moved by the book, she fell in love with me sight unseen because of what I wrote here. I'm honored to hear that, man. That's very humbling, you know. But she's a crime victim advocate, man. It just touched her. And so she looked me up. We got in touch three months before I got out. I'm calling her like all day long. I got gang members saying, get off that phone. You don't run shit around here, you know. And I'm like, whatever, do what you're going to do. I'm using the phone, you know. <laughs> I'm in love. So you want to beat my ass? I don't care. I'm going home in a couple of weeks. You know, <laughs> do what you do. But uh, so I was being pretty cocky in New York, and I was just hogging the phone at the end of my sentence. And that's how I met Mary. Oh, man, incredible. That plays out on the show. You got to watch Inmate to Roommate on A&E. And if you don't have A&E, they unlock some of the episodes on play.aetv.com. And then hit shows, scroll, you'll see Inmate to Roommate. It shows you which ones are unlocked. So Tom introduced myself to my now fiance, Dr. Mary Bass. She's very like-minded, and you'll see her in some of the things I've done. And we're engaged and, you know, you know, hopefully live happily ever after. You know, I'm happy and proud to be calling my fiance. Before I get released, about a year and a half ago, all of a sudden, an acquaintance says, hey, A&E is doing a special show about guys getting out of prison that are not going home to family. They're going with non-family and they want to see how housing problem leads to recidivism. Because they already know substance abuse, alcoholism, guys get out, they don't change, they drink, they get high. A lot of them end up back in prison. Recidivism rates, repeat offender rates are super high in this country. Because they don't do crap for you in prison. You got to fight for everything you get involved with. And even then it's not available most of the time. Because to do anything for prisoners is contrary to job security for the COs and the administrators. They don't want you coming out of change, man. They want you coming out and doing the same freaking thing. They want your kids coming back because you're in prison and you're not taking care of your kids and they're getting in trouble. There's real no interest in administrators to do positive things for prisoners. It's the prison industrial complex, you know, the military complex, all one and the same, same type of scenario. Just exploiting us for phone calls and commissary and so they can have job security in some rural areas and all that. So I was really very involved with like prison advocacy, inmate right advocacy. So I met Mary, we talked for three months before my release, and then I got offered this thing on A&E, brand new docuseries talking about recidivism. I said, sure, I'll take part in it because it's a way for me to help educate the public. It's a huge network. They do a lot of true crime. Now, what better opportunity being handed to me right out of prison? The second I got released, I got cameras in my face. I'm literally not out of the gate after 18 years for like 30 seconds. Cameras everywhere, you know, the crew from Sharp Entertainment, God bless and thank you, Sean, for this opportunity and making me look good. Even when I was uh, even heavier and pale and long hair, and like near death because I was around COVID and scared out of my wits for months that I wasn't going to make it. So I didn't look too good the first day or two out of prison. Listen, I spent my time reading, reading books, writing, writing manuscripts, learning how to write screenplays, you know, studying the Bible. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a Bible thumper, but I do, I do love God very, very much. And I know in certain things in life, you don't put him first, the rest is not going to work for you. In my opinion, you can't continue doing things the old way and things, things are you know, just going to change. You got to really have that higher power, whatever you want to call it. For me, it's Jesus Christ, it's God. That's it. But, you know, I, I do try to remember that first at all times, you know, but I still curse. I use the F word all day long. It's, it's a hard habit to break. But I get out, camera's in front of my face. We film, you know, for X amount of time, and it turns into like 10 episodes, first season. So it started airing on August 18th, and all of a sudden, this fan group's springing up all over the place. I'm the number one character. Yeah, we want more of Bill. Bill's so funny. We, you know, Bill, go knock on the prison door, tell the warden to let me back in, get away from those crazy people you're living with. You know, the people I was living with were very strong Seventh-day Adventists. Unbeknownst to me, they were a horrible marriage, and I'd been writing the lady for like five years. Very polite, very respectful to her, never inappropriate. She evidently fell in love with me, and she was trying to have me take her away from the husband and leave, but I met Mary just before I got out, and I wasn't feeling this lady one bit. She wasn't attractive to me. I wasn't interested in her. I was in love with Mary. Man, she blew a gasket when she learned about Mary. <laughs> so, so you'll see 
watch inmate to roommate as you guys watch it you'll see this play out where this lady's at my door at night and trying to get in bed with me when her husband's at work saying inappropriate things and her she lights up in the beginning especially when the conversation's about me but when her husband's around she's like like a sourpuss all the time you know and her husband was into his own weird stuff that he was doing outside the house and so you'll see a lot of this where like i wasn't allowed to have ice i wasn't allowed to have this and that and it's all real man this isn't scripted people like Come on, that's got to, I said, listen, these people are off their rockers, and these are the rules I had to deal with. There, there was a, a list of rules, which this, if you saw the show yet, episode I saw one. It, yeah, I saw it. You recognize this? Yeah. Okay, so for your audience, I'm holding up the rules, Bill's house rules, from the wall of the bedroom that they moved me into, Then they had it all decked out in purple and pink. Yeah, it's no drinking or drugs, no smoking, no strip clubs, no pornography, no profanity. No, 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 no. Quiet <laughs> sleep hours, look for a job. It goes on and on and on. We call them the, the 67 commandments, you know. <laughs> and, and then there was addendums. There was like little post-it notes all over it with more rules. And it's Bible scriptures and stuff. You got to see the trailer from episode one. It's put on my William Steele True Crime YouTube. At the top, I have it pinned. The first trailer from that show. You'll see me sitting on the bed like, what the hell did I get myself into? You know, by agreeing to come to these people's house. And a lot of that insanity played out. I had fans want to buy the sign because the screen use and the show blew up like huge. So the network loves the ratings because it shot up so high, so fast. If you exclude sports shows and weather related shows like Florida hurricane coverage and all that, if you excluded those, it came in like the number two reality show in the whole country. My show in like the third weekend, not only sprung up so freaking high, like unbelievable rating, the popularity, but it also beat A&E's top show, 60 Days In. We'll see what happens. I can't say much more than that. They're very That's happy. That's awesome. Well, man, you're a great guy. It couldn't happen to a better person, Bill. It's, I appreciate it's, it. I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that it gave me a good platform to reach more people. Um, I haven't been able to help all of them that have come forward, but I have quite a few hit me up on that Instagram, on my Facebook pages and this and that, saying they have an incarcerated loved one. And the best ones, I'll be honest with you, man, you know, this is all about helping people and crime victims and people that have been incarcerated or get screwed over somehow, giving them a, a platform. And I know, I know, just at a gut level and a spiritual level, that this platform wasn't handed to me to squander or abuse or be a clown. I try to take it serious, do like you're doing, put some positive stories up there, reform lives like Ciro DiPaggio, he made Mob King, uh, you know, Anthony Rio Monday, no matter what people think of him, you know, he's putting a positive message behind what he's doing, explains why he does it. It was great to meet you, man, through what we have a lot of mutual connections and I could flesh out a hell of a lot more of the story. But every time I tell it, I like to, if I'm including a criminal thing that I did, like a big heist or something, or a heist yeah. chase, I want to include the downside. I have to, I have to try to couch my yeah. stories in a way that they're helpful to people.